Good morning, y'all. Uh, this is amazing. Uh, I rounded the corner down there, and I, Andy, when he invited me, I thought there was going to be six or seven guys in a room, and I thought saw these cars, and I thought, wow, what's going on down here? And uh, But anyway, it's great to be here and uh, share my story with you. Um, I grew up in a little town called Huffman, Texas. My dad worked at the paper mill there, and sports was my life. I was... Uh, I thought I was going to be a professional baseball player. I lived for baseball and uh, the smell of a glove, the smell of a grass, new cut grass field. It just uh, excited me. So I poured my whole life into sports as a kid, believe it or not. I was little. I also played on the basketball team. I was five foot eight. I couldn't dunk, but I could grab the rim. And uh, so I was just, that was my world. And when I graduated, it didn't play out like I thought it was going to play out. And I went off to college. I went off to Sam Houston State University. Uh, spent five and a half years there. Uh, really, I took all my competitive spirit with sports, and I poured it into trying to outdrink my roommate. And he was about six foot four, 280. And so I tried to outdrink him pretty much every night I could. And I lost. So I uh, graduated. Uh, with a 2.01 GPA from Sam Houston State. Out of 1,000 students, about third from the bottom. I, my first job was uh, framing houses as a helper for $3 an hour. And I really felt like uh, my life was going nowhere. I was raised in the church. Um, my dad was a deacon, was raised in a little... Uh, Baptist Church there in Huffman, Texas. But when I got to college, I really uh, jumped the rails. And for about uh, six, seven years, I uh, kind of went crazy. And uh, I found myself down in Austin, Texas. I got my real estate license, got my broker license, and became a real estate appraiser. And I was living in Austin, Texas. And even back then, the traffic was terrible. And I hated my job with a passion. I'm passionate. I'm either going to hate something passionately or love it passionately. And I hated my job passionately. Uh, as a real estate appraiser, some of you might know every day I had someone mad at me. It was either the buyer, the seller, or the banker. And, and it, was, it was driving me crazy. And I remember one day I was stuck in traffic on I-35 in Austin, Texas. Traffic came to a complete stop. And I began pounding on the dash of my car. And I said, no, Lord, this can't be my life. This can't be my life. And I began to ask myself, what am I passionate about? And the, the word that kept coming back to me was music, music and songs. And it was really interesting because I was last chair saxophone player in school. I tried taking piano lessons. That didn't work. So I assumed that that gift of music was for somebody else and not for me. And, but as I began to ponder that, that how, to me, there was food, water, air, and music. I'd hear a song and someone would articulate something, say something that I'd felt deeply and didn't know how to express. And I was so grateful. Uh, to these songwriters, and one night I walked into a place called the Soap Creek Saloon there in uh, South Austin, and there was a, 
legendary Texas songwriter named Billy Joe Shaver there. And Billy Joe is kind of a wild man, poet. Uh, godly. Maybe some people in this room might not have met Billy Joe and say, well, there's a saint, but he's a saintly man in my book. And broken, beautifully broken. And he wrote poetry. His music just moved me deeply. And I walked out of there different. You know, you have some rooms you walk in one way and you walk out another way. And I walked in that room one way and I walked out another way. So a couple nights later, I'm sitting there and I knew just a handful of chords on a guitar from sitting around noodling in my, my dorm room in college and noodling around my apartment in Austin. And I went for a walk one night and I probably said one of the shortest prayers that I've said, but I just said, Lord, I've never asked you this before, but would you help me be a songwriter? And I didn't hear an audible voice. I didn't, nothing like that. But instantly, I knew in my heart of hearts that that, that was my destiny, that I was supposed to write songs for the rest of my life. And I began thanking God for the songs that were on the way. I started thanking God. I said, thank you, Lord. And every night I go for a walk, I say, thank you, Lord, for the songs that are on their way. And I'd come home from my real estate appraisal job. I would eat something, take a nap after going for a long walk, and I would write anywhere from, say, 8 or 9 o'clock to midnight, 1 in the morning, and night after night. And I began to change my words. I mean, people would ask me, you know, um, my, my buddy at work, he'd call me, and he'd say, he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm writing a hit song. He said, really? You write songs? Why? I said, how many songs you written? I said, none yet, but they're coming. They're coming. And I remember going to a dentist one time, and this was between jobs, and he, he, where you fill out your occupation, and I wrote songwriter on there. And they were like, how many songs you had recorded? I said, none. I mean, and, and so, but I began to <clears throat> write every day, and six months go by, and I'd been writing every day, every day, every day, and no songs had come through. And I went on that same walk around the loop at my apartment, and I said, Lord, I believe you told me that I'm going to be a songwriter, and I'm going to keep thanking you till they get here. And I started thanking God for the songs on their way, and that next week I wrote six songs. They came together. A verse would fit with a chorus. All of a sudden I had six songs. And one night I stayed up to about one in the morning, I'd finished a song. It's kind of silly, silly little song. And we went to a place called Luby's Cafeteria in Austin, kind of like, uh, no, Wyatt's. I went to Wyatt's. It's kind of like Luby's where you get your tray and go down the deal. And I was with my buddy at work that I worked with as an appraiser. And I'm sliding my tray down. And I pulled the lyric out of my back pocket. And I'm reading it to him. And he's laughing, kind of going, man, that's, that's funny. I, you need to try to get that to Willie Nelson. And right at that moment, a lady standing right here tapped me on the shoulder, and she said, are you a songwriter? And I said, uh, yes, ma'am. And she said, are you any good? And I said, uh, I, I kind of think so, but you'd have to judge for yourself. And she wrote her name out on a piece of paper and her phone number, and she said, call me. I might be able to help you. 
And when she handed me that piece of paper, I knew that that was a door. This, this lady was put there in my life. This was a door for me into the music business. I did not know one thing about her other than she gave me that piece of paper. I called her. I went over to her house. I played her my six songs I'd written. And she said, first of all, I can't even believe I've invited a stranger into my home. She had a beautiful home there in Austin with a tennis court and a pool and all this stuff. And she said, but second of all, I feel like I'm supposed to help you, and I'm going to help you. And she said, my brother-in-law is named Johnny Gimble. Uh, some of you may or may not have heard of him. He's a legendary Texas fiddle player, played with everybody from George Strait to Merle Haggard to the Bob Wills Texas Playboys to on and on and on. And, uh, and she said, my best friend is vice president of Warner Brothers Records in Nashville. <laughs> and she said, write, write some more songs. And I'm going to take you over to Johnny Gimble's house. And so I wrote four more songs the next week, and I had ten songs. And I went over to Johnny Gimble's house. I'd never sung in a microphone in my life. And he had a cheap little microphone, a cheap little recorder. And he said, all right, son, uh, you just kick it off, and I'll play with you. So I started strumming, and he said, whoa, 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 stop. He said, uh, what key is that song in? And I said, uh... I don't know, but the first chord's a C, and he, he kind of laughed, and he said, let me see your guitar, and he kind of noodled with it, and he goes, son, do you realize this thing's tuned about an octave and a half too high, and and, and uh, I said, no, I just wind them till they get tight, and and uh, so he, uh, we... We, we did those 10 songs, no rehearsal, no practice, no anything. And it just, he played, I played, had my tape, left there, sent it off to Nashville, didn't hear anything for three months. I called the lady I met in the cafeteria, I said, do you mind if I call your friend in Nashville, see what they thought of my tape? And she said, gave me the number to Warner Brothers. I called the secretary, of course, would not let me through to talk to anybody, but she took my name. I hung up the phone. And I turned around to a buddy, the same buddy was in the cafeteria. I said, I just called Warner Brothers Records in Nashville. And about the time, the phone rang. And the secretary was out of the office. And I reached back, and I went, hello, like this. And the lady goes, could I speak to Alan Shamblin? I said, that's, that's me. And it was vice president of Warner Brothers Records, uh, Martha Sharp. And she said, uh, you were calling me. And I said, I just want to know what you thought of the tape. And she said, I, I like the tape. And I like, I like, I want to come see you play in Austin. And she said, you perform? And I said, yes, ma'am. And I completely lied. I'd never sung. Uh, I'd never stood, a, stood on a stage in my life and talked into a microphone. And she came down to Austin with a legendary producer named Barry Beckett, who produced Bob Dylan, Leonard Skinner, and on and on and on. And Barry was a gentle giant and a soulful man, sweet man. And they heard me do a couple of songs. I, I sat in during a guy's break in Austin and encouraged me to move to Nashville. And they walked out of the room, and I immediately got writer's block for two years. I did not write another song for two years. One of the best things that's ever happened to me. Because I learned so much 
by not writing a song. And it was kind of like getting a, you know what, a vaccine, kind of getting a vaccine against some of the things I was going to be facing in the next 37 years. And one of the things I learned in writer's block, when I was sitting in my room writing those 10 songs, I was just sitting down trying to express my deepest joy and my deepest sorrow. No thought to anything else. The minute Martha and Barry came down, I began trying to be smarter than myself, better than myself. I stepped out of my own skin and tried to be somebody else. But I moved to Nashville with those 10th songs. Believe it or not, I got a little publishing deal on the merit of those 10 songs in the midst of writer's block. Hadn't written a song in two years. I was signed to a publishing deal, and they started hooking me up with co-writers. And in my mind, I knew I had writer's block. In my mind, I was going, I don't know what I'm doing. But I was a great cheerleader. I'd go in to co-write, and I'd go, oh, man, that's great, that's great. And I, I faked my way through it, I thought, for about six months. And one day, my publisher called me into the office, her office, and she said, Alan, I know you're working really, really hard. But I'd turn in, I can't even tell you how many songs in six months. And she said, I've got all these songs, but I don't hear you in one of them. And she said, these songs from Texas, you brought those 10. I heard you, but I don't hear you. She said, why don't you go back to Texas and reconnect with your roots for a week and then come back here and write by yourself? And when she said, write by yourself, I went, oh, my gosh, I'm busted. They are fixing to find out I don't have a clue what I'm doing. I've been a fake and a fraud, and they're going to find this out, and I'm going to move back to Texas and, and do whatever. So I go down to Texas, hang out with my buddy that was in the cafeteria that day, and I told him, I said, Tim, I got six months left on my contract, and if things don't change pretty quick, I'm going to be moving back to Austin. I get on a plane Sunday night, fly back to Austin. I lived in a little efficiency apartment. I'm not kidding. It was not much bigger than this stage. My couch was my bed. Uh, had a little uh, microwave and a little big refrigerator. It was a pay-by-the-week kind of apartment in South uh, Nashville. And I got up. This is a true story. Some of y'all heard it. I'm going to keep telling it just in case somebody out there right now is where I was because I was completely at, at my lowest point in my journey. Having thought that I was called to something, that something was my destiny, and it was not going, going well at all. And so I got up that morning. I walked over. The TV was about right here, and I just hit the on button, and I turned to walk to the kitchen, which is about right there. And, <laughs> and behind me, as the TV comes on, it was an early morning televangelist, and I heard behind me someone say, there's somebody out there fixing to give up on a dream. Don't give up. The race always gets toughest just before you cross the finish line. And I turned around, and he was pointing right at me. And I said, okay. And he's, he was interviewing an Olympic 400-meter sprinter. Had his gold medallion hanging around his neck. 
And he was talking about the last 40 yards of the 400 yards. He said, my legs are burning. I can't hardly feel them. My, my lungs are about to explode. And he said, it's the hardest part right before. He said, don't give up. And I said, I received that. And so in my car that morning, on the way down to Music Row at Harding Road in Trousdale, out of nowhere, I know where it was from somewhere, the lines, he wore starched white shirts, button at the neck, he'd sit in the shade and watch the chickens peck. His teeth were gone, but what the heck? Just, I like, I wrote it down and I didn't even know who I was writing it about. I wrote those lines down and I went neck, peck, and heck. That's kind of corny, but I'll take it. It's all I got. I mean, I was happy to get some lines. I had not written any lines by myself in over three years. I walked into my office. I wrote those lines down neatly, and I stood up. I was walking around the room, and then out of my mouth, the words, I thought he walked on water just fell out, and I got chills all over my body, and I remembered my great-grandfather. My mother brought him over to meet me when I was a little boy, and uh, he was in his 90s. I didn't get to know him really well, but he had been a cowboy in Texas, and he had a lot of stories, and I didn't know my grand. My mother was raised in an orphanage, so I didn't get to meet my grandparents, but I got to meet my great-grandfather. And this song literally poured out like honey out of a jar. I just sat there and wrote it out. And I took it into my publisher, and I played it for her. And she sat there, and she goes, yeah, that's what we've been looking for out of you. And she took it over to Warner Brother Records, and they played it for Randy Travis, and he recorded it. And it was a number one song about four months later. It was my first number one song. So I learned so much during that time. And one of the things I learned about songwriting, maybe it will apply to your life. Maybe, I think on some level it will. Because as a believer in Christ and a follower, you know, and and being a blue-collar guy, I want to do it. I want to work really, really, really hard. But so many, in fact, I can go down to each one of them that my songs I've been a part of that have done the best over all these years were written at a place when I reached the end of myself and surrendered, then it came through. It was like God sits there, the whole, I'm waiting for you to reach the end of yourself so I can, I can bless you, you know, and so... I've, it's not been sm- completely smooth sailing since that day. There's been pe- many peaks and valleys. Um, I, a few years b- back, uh, you know, early on, you're young. You come to town, well, you're too young or you're too this. You do it for a long time, then suddenly your age becomes a factor. And about 13 years ago, I'd, I had been on an incredible run for over 20-something years. And... Things weren't going great, and within about a month's time, two of my most consistent co-writers that I co-write with, both of them essentially told me the same thing. One of them said, Alan, your day's over. You've had your time. He said, that's just the way the music business works. That's the way the music business works. You get a season, it's over, 
and you need to be. And then a couple weeks later, another friend of mine says, Alan, they don't want Alan Shamblin songs anymore. And with all this encouragement I'd been getting, um, I canceled my book, and I, there was a little coffee shop. Make sure I'm not, i got 10 more minutes. A coffee shop over on 96. I started going there every morning and writing poetry. No guitar. Because to me, writing poetry, it's like a deep dive into your heart and soul. You go with no melody. You're not looking. You're just trying to get down. And so I was drilling deep, trying to find out if there was anything left inside me worthy of anybody's time that was useful to the world. Because to me, songwriting and songs, when I was growing up, they were useful to my life. And that's what I've always wanted to do is write songs that were useful to the listener, that weren't taking something from them, but were giving them something. So I was going to this little coffee shop day in, day out. And one night, I'm driving down South All Road, and I get a phone call from my pastor, uh, Steve Berger. And he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm just driving down South Hall. He said, why don't you stop by the house? I said, okay. So I pulled in Steve's uh, driveway. I went in his living room, and on the flat screen TV was the CMA Awards. I, had a, I didn't even have an idea that they were on TV. And I looked at him, and Steve's wife, Sarah, looked straight at me. She goes, oh, my goodness, Alan. She, I said, what? She goes, you're going to be on the CMA Awards next year. I said, wow, well, I received that, you know. And little did she know where I was in my heart and in mine. I left there that night. It was either the next day or the next day. I got a call from an old friend of mine named Tom Douglas, and he said, Alan, do you remember that song we started or wrote six years ago called The House That Built Me? I said, yeah. He says, you want to revisit it and see see if there's something there. So I said, sure. And he said, when, can we, when do you have time? And I said, tomorrow. <laughs> you know, so I drove over to his house. We pulled the lyric out, and everything that was wrong with that lyric was just, like, obvious. And just in a few minutes, we changed it. It was done. The song went on. Long story about that, but ultimately it was recorded by Miranda Lambert. Uh, it was a CMA song of the year. I stood there and looked over at Sarah and Steve. Whew, man, it was voted song of the decade. It was, uh, and I say all that, all glory to God. I really don't, at this point, it's 63. I'd love for y'all to like me, but it's okay if you don't. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's, 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 it's whatever. I'm just saying that to say all glory to God. And uh, so, here I am today, and, and talking to y'all, and, and I've, I've had an amazing journey. Um, I've parked cars, worked in warehouses, done a lot of things, and I just hope that anything come out of today that, that you'd be, be encouraged, no matter what age you are, what season you are, if God's called you, he's still got something for you to do. We're here. We got to get about doing it, you know? And I, I remember playing basketball, and I loved, and one of the most, have y'all ever been in like a half full gymnasium when the buzzer, final buzzer goes off? It's the worst. That buzzer's coming for all of us, and we got to get about playing. Uh, anyway, 
I got time for, I guess, a song. Uh, Ricky, I just want to, I want to give a shout out to Ricky for showing up early this morning. That young man was working till one something. And it was here early, early this morning. And for musicians and songwriters, I mean, like the last time I got up this early was the last time I stayed up all night, you know. say you can't go home again but I just had to come back one last time and ma'am I know you don't know me from Adam but these handprints on the front steps they're mine and up those stairs in that little back bedroom where I did my homework and I learned to play guitar and I bet you didn't know under that live oak my favorite dog is buried in the yard and I thought if I could touch this place or feel it this brokenness inside me might start healing out here it's like I'm someone else I thought that maybe I could find myself If I could just come in I swear I'll leave Won't take nothing but a memory From the house that built me Mama cut out pictures of houses for years From better homes and garden magazines The plants were drawn, the concrete poured Nail by nail and board by board Daddy gave life to Mama's dream And I thought if I could touch this place or feel this brokenness inside me might start healing And out here it's like I'm someone else I thought that maybe I could find myself If I could just come in, I swear I'll leave Won't take nothing but a memory And 
Thank you all very much. Have a great day.